Okay, we'll turn, if you haven't already, to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Uh, if you haven't marked your place already, as I said, we're going to dive right in to a message I've just titled, Godlessness in Difficult Times. It really is drawn right from either the heading uh, of this passage and or even the first verse. Godless, godlessness in Difficult Times. And I'll invite you, as is our custom, to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word as we just give attention to His voice reverence to his holiness and listen as if it is he speaking to us in his word because it is. Beginning in verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are thankful for your true and living word, and we come to it always with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it and that you will say it, that you will speak, that you will penetrate to the very depths of our heart and deliver truth and life power and love to all the places in our innermost being where those things are needed. And so as we sit ready to hear from you, would you speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And God, I ask as always that you would move me out of the way that I am here just as your vessel called to be here. Would you just use my voice and my very person as an instrument to communicate your words and your will to your people in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, if you've been with us and were here last week, and of course, you know, of course we've been going through this series in First and Second Timothy, and last week in uh, most of chapter 2, we had this reminder to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It was keep the main thing the main thing. Remember Jesus and endure with him. And, and, he, and, he, and he told Timothy to stay centered in the gospel. Don't get caught up in uh, irreverent babble and um, you know, quarrels about words and, and those kinds of things. Because the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, you remember, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. And so that's the backdrop, actually, the immediate backdrop to this passage we just read. So in other words, 
here he says something more specific about the evil that must be endured patiently. And it is uh, quite a full measure of evil indeed, isn't it, uh, that we just read about. But these are the opponents that he must correct with gentleness. Things are bad and they're going to get worse. And here in chapter 3 he begins to explain just how. And so we see it opens up there in verse 1 with this imperative or whatever to but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty this is in verse one one of two commands in this passage and so what I'll say you know people often uh, just about always come to um, a sermon or a lesson or a text wondering what what can I do with this what am I supposed to do in response well there are two things that Timothy is told and, and that we are told specifically and explicitly to do and only to in this text. Understand this, that this is the way evil operates. And second in verse uh, 5, avoid such men. So that's a preview to sort of how the whole thing is framed here. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Last days... Um, as it's used in the scriptures in the, Old, in the Old Testament, of course, there are a number of different prophetic passages that, that, that predict the last days and the difficulty that will attend those. But we're told in the book of Acts, when Peter's preaching at Pentecost, that the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is a fulfillment of one of those prophecies from Joel 2 um, about what would happen in the last days. So in other words, the last days actually are inaugurated in the whole New Testament era. This isn't just he's speaking of something in the future. He doesn't say some, sometime, a long time from now, these things will happen. But he's speaking of a pattern of things that periodically unfold in the era of uh, the church, the New Testament church. So he's speaking about people in the present tense. That these kinds of things are going on uh, right there in the immediate context in which Timothy's ministering. But, but this passage, I think, has been, this has been my experience anyway in talking with people about it over the years. It just strikes the average reader as immediately relevant. And maybe this seems immediately relevant um, more right now than it, than it ever has in our, in our lifetime or in our memory. It could easily say, in 2020, there will be people who are, uh, who, who are lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and so on. It, se it seems so pertinent to the times we're living in. The characteristics on this list are descriptive of a, a godless culture and ought not to be descriptive of the church. Okay, so we, we want to kind of make note of that fact. That this is it's descriptive of godlessness, of a pagan culture. It ought not to be descriptive of, a of the church. And yet it is descriptive of some in the church. And that's really uh, Paul's point here. But it's it's most notably true that it's, that it's descriptive of a godless culture in two ways here. And I think two uh, sort of headings that you could put a lot of what's contained here in chapter 3, or these first uh, several verses of chapter 3, 
under. But the, it's misdirected love and missing virtues, we could call it, okay? Misdirected love and missing virtues. That, that, that what is it that's sort of overtly, distinctively pagan about these adjectives that describe uh, these evil people in difficult times? Well, their love is misdirected and their uh, certain virtues are just uh, missing. Here's what I mean by that. If you look in, in, in verse 1 and then verse 5, you'll see mention of love of self, love of money, love of pleasure, and expressly not love of God. Lovers of pleasure, it says in verse 5, uh, or maybe verse 4, not love of God. Their love is misdirected. All of those things, self, money, pleasure, everything in creation that is true and beautiful and good is supposed to point us to our awareness, our consciousness of our affection. All of that is supposed to point, it, point us to the one who is himself truth and who is beautiful and who alone is good and the author of all goodness. They're supposed to point our attention in that way, and yet the, the default mode of the world is to set our love upon those things themselves rather than the, the uh, creator of those things and the one who is supposed to receive our love, affection, and worship. It's misdirected in that way. I said missing virtues um, actually because in the Greek... In this passage, many of these words actually begin with the prefix a, uh, which means without, right? So like if we say somebody is amoral, they just, they don't have morals, it seems. So it's not that they're immoral and they're not moral. They're amoral. They're just without really a, a guiding, governing kind of morality. And we could think of other words like apathetic and asynchronous and different words like that where a means Without and when, and when and when you read this in Greek, there are many of the words here um, are are written that way. And so you see, for instance, where it says ungrateful, unholy, heart, heartless. I think maybe in other translations it says without love, unappeasable, without self control, even brutal and not loving good. All of those words in the Greek have the prefix a or a. Now, the reason I even make mention of that is to say that he's, he's naming things that are missing in the life of a pagan. These are, those are virtues. So gratitude is missing and holiness is missing and love or compassion is missing. An appeasable kind of spirit, uh, reconcilable is missing. Self-control is missing. So you might imagine uh, this illustration or metaphor that would help imagine an airplane uh even more specifically like a, a weather airplane or something like that with a lot of instruments and equipment and and so forth in the plane and imagine just a a, a rather major explosion that just blows a hole a hole in the in the fuselage or whatever and uh what would happen i i think <laughs> is that a lot of what was in that plane would just be sucked out of it and the pilot 
is likely either just going to lose control entirely or have a very, very difficult time than keeping that plane on course because of the disrupted airflow and all, and all that kind of thing. Uh, the, the, the point in sharing that or the, the sort of providing a picture of that is to say that in the fall, that's kind of essentially what happened is there's this, this sort of explosion, metaphorically speaking, um, that kind of sucks out of us certain virtues, that there is goodness um, inherent in mankind as image bearers of God that then is lost through the fall. And there is now our, um, what should be our steering or guiding affection, the love of God, is now misdirected uh, toward love of self and love of money and love of earthly things. So, uh, so, so the, the pagan who's without God, the godless person, is understandably, in fact, necessarily uh, misguided in his love, misdirected in his love, and missing some virtues. Now, that's not the worst of the problem, though, because the worst of the problem is that he is speaking about the Christian community. I said... These, these things are true of pagan culture. They ought not to be true of the church. But they are true of some in the church. And that's exactly what's at issue when Paul is writing this letter here. Uh, namely that false teachers um, are being exposed for what they really are. It, it goes on in these verses like 6 through 9 here to say they're basically charlatans and deceivers. I don't know if you caught the fact and where he says they're um, among these people who are described by all these characteristics are those who creep into households. They capture weak women who are just susceptible to being deceived for whatever reasons. They're burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. This is one of the things characteristic of deceivers and deception. Is they're all in their opposition to the truth, they're always just blurring the truth. They're making unclear what God has, has made quite clear. Always learning, never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. They're charlatans. They are willingly, directly opposed uh, to the truth and those trying to teach the truth, like Paul and Timothy. And so um, it, it says they're like those who opposed. Moses, these men, Janus and Jambres, actually are not named in the Old Testament. Um, the unnamed magicians who or sorcerers who oppose Moses actually uh, in, in tradition, Hebrew tradition, and down into the New Testament era, they were just given these names, Janus and Jambres. But that's who is speaking of. But they're knowingly opposing the truth and those that... Uh, Paul and Timothy are bumping up against are, are exactly that way. They know what they're doing. They know what they're saying. They are opposed to the truth. And these are people, again, who have been even leaders in the Christian community. They have been named and numbered among the Christian community. And so if there is an indictment here, it's not an indictment against the pagan culture, but against those in the church who have begun to look and act 
more and more like a pagan culture. Let me say that again so we can begin to get our minds turned in the right direction here. Because when we first read this passage, again, it seems pretty obviously descriptive of some of what we see going on in our world. But I think the, the, the initial reaction is very often to see other people as guilty of these things. People outside the church, in fact, in, indeed, the, the pagan culture, if you will, a godless, even people who are decidedly godless in their orientation. We see the fault there, but that's actually not what he's speaking to. If there is an indictment, as I said, it's not an indictment against the culture for being pagan, but against those within the church who look and act more and more pagan. So the charge to Timothy and to us is to avoid such people and avoid, avoid being like them. That is to say, avoid them as part of the Christian community. Part of Timothy's charge is to, is to ensure that those who are part of the Christian community are Christian. And those who are not Christian you relate to them as unchristian, but you certainly don't let leaders in your church, uh, or you, rather you don't let non-Christian people be leaders in your church. And that's what, what Timothy is being charged with. Avoid such people. He's been, he's been pushing back against this for years now. And, and Paul is, this is the last mention he makes of him. It just says, avoid such people. So in times of increasing evil, we need to be able to identify vices like this within the church. We need to see them where they are present in the church so that we can root them out. And we need to identify vices in the culture so we can keep them out. Okay? We want to identify vices in the church so we can root them out, identify vices in the culture so that we can keep them out. I, I want to give you another sort of illustration to hang this on a little bit um, because we'll come back around to it. But uh, I knew of um, somebody who had grown up down in uh, Harker's Island. Some of the local folks around here are familiar with Harker's Island down in Carter County. But the original settlers of Harker's Island, most of them have come, had come from one of the islands just across the Sound on, on the Outer Banks. And those are many of those original residents, really maybe all the men who were original residents of Harker's Island, they were boat builders. They made their livelihood from the ocean, uh, fishing and whaling and, and whatever else. But they were boat builders. And so they built their houses the way that they built boats. Uh, most notably to keep water out of them. So that when the storms came, when the hurricanes came and the tide rose, uh, those houses floated right up on the water, uh, but water didn't uh, most of the time come in the houses. Now, of course, that's changed now as, as houses are quite tied down to protect them from the wind and that sort of thing too. But, but, but that is to say, in a storm and after a storm, if there is water in the house, you want to get it out of the house. But if there's water in the yard, you want to keep it in the yard. You want to keep it out of the house. So, so in this whole reflection and examination we go through here, our interest is to say, if there's any of this in us, individually in the church, any of these vices, we want to get it out. 
And, and we want to identify where it's present in the culture so we can keep it out. Okay, so let's consider first the vices that are in the church. And I would suggest that the, the indictment against the church here, the American church, is not so much that we're like the world is, but that we're like the world used to be not so long ago. What, what I mean by that is we really are kind of following the course of this world, as Ephesians 2 says, it uses that language. We're following the course of this world. We're kind of on the same path. We're just lagging behind it a little bit. So at any moment, we, we look more holy by comparison. <laughs> we look more righteous than the world at any given moment. But if we look over time, we might not look as, we might not look as different from the world as, as we think we do. And maybe as much as we wish we did. We're, we are pursuing the world probably more than we think. And in some ways we're pursuing Christ less than we think. The bride of Christ, whom he intends to prepare for himself um, as a pure, spotless bride. He says that in, in, in Ephesians 1 that... Uh, we were chosen to him before the foundations of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him. He has that purpose for us to make us holy and blameless. And the, the bride, we all together as a church, whom he intends to prepare as a pure and spotless bride, uh, I'm afraid to say, will often wiggle out of her white bridal ground and slip on uh, a, her white bridal gown, that is, and slip on a red dress and prostitute herself uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, on Wall Street, on Pennsylvania Avenue, on Capitol Hill, that all the, all the gods of this culture, the church prostitutes herself toward and, and, and makes those gods our gods and even makes those idols in some cases, the very cornerstones of the churches that we built in the last few decades. Now, that may be more than you want to even digest or swallow. Maybe I should have just decided to end it right there and, and let us muse and meditate on that a little bit. But, but stick with me for a few minutes and see if maybe you will find anything here to agree with. Is it, is it too much of a stretch to say um, that the church in many expressions, and I should say in many of our expressions, I'm not looking at somebody else as examples of this uh, besides ourselves, but is it, is it too much of a stretch to say uh, that in many ways we're built upon love of self and love of pleasure? That we have self-promotion and self-exaltation as like, key features of the church, self-promotion self and self-exaltation of leaders in particular. So people like me are going to be the guy, you know, who comes out on stage to be the, the key speaker in the spotlight, almost as if the band plays as a warm-up act for the celebrity guy who's going to come out and give the deep, you know, guru talk or whatever. But that, that, it, that it's fashioned around 
self-promotion and self-exaltation in, in some cases of individuals. And then self-gratification of churchgoers. So you've got self-exaltation on one hand, self-gratification on the other. That is where people shop for churches based on kind of what experience it is that they want to get out of it. And, um, and, and they're looking to sort of gratify their own interests and pleasures. Self-love and self-pleasure. Now, you, you can ask that question yourself and consider to what extent um, that's true. But there's love of money, of course, that has also driven the church more than we would like to admit in uh, plenty of ways most egregiously displayed, I guess, by some of the, uh, the, the greatest offenders of the prosperity preachers, you know, who fleece the sheep rather than feed them and, and sort of to their own uh, satisfaction and gratification again, love of self, love of pleasure, love of money. And all of that suggests, again, more than we'd, we'd care to admit, that the church is proud, arrogant, and swollen with conceit. We've, we've created in American Protestantism anyway, this competitive market for spiritual experiences where uh, even as churches, we sort of enter that marketplace trying to get people to come do our thing rather than somebody else's thing. It's about me. It's about you. But more often than we wish were true, it's, it's not about Jesus. Love of self, love of money, love of pleasure, pride, arrogance, and conceit. Well, Christ will prepare for him a spotless bride. He will prepare for himself a spotless bride who is holy and blameless. And part of the painful disruption of church life that we are living through right now may very well be part of that process. That God is purifying his church. And uh, we want to participate with him, don't we? If that's what he's doing. Even if it's painful. You know, I can kind of remember growing up as a boy. Going out and playing and getting really dirty as a boy. I can remember if my grandmother ever wanted to clean me up. And she put a wash rag to my behind my ears. I mean, she could, you know, it, she just scrubbed the skin off of it, you know. She could just as well use a blowtorch to be cleaning me as a, as a washcloth. But it was, it was a little bit painful because there was a lot of grime there. But it was a good process with good intentions. And that's what Christ intends to do with his bride. And he may very well be doing it right now, if so. And to whatever extent he's doing it right now, it's a good thing. That he's cleaning us, purging us of those vices that are in the church. Well, the, the other thing, as I mentioned, we want to identify is the vices in the culture and see them for what they are so that we keep them out of the church. The average person, as I suggested earlier, reads this passage and kind of thinks, wow, that sounds really familiar. That sounds like almost ripped from the headlines. We watch it play out on the news every day, pretty much. And of course, it, we do tend to hear uh, more about the worst happenings of things in the news. Um, it's what we're inclined to read. <laughs> it's what we're inclined to click on. And so it's what's 
offered to us. Um, but the worst side of our culture that we, that we see and read about all the time gives examples, ample evidence of being abusive. Again, think about some of the, some of the most startling headlines right now and, and the, the, the anger and sort of madness in the world. But an abusive culture, brutal, heartless, slanderous, treacherous. There are people right now who will do whatever they need to do, um, however even violent it may be. People who are willing to say whatever they need to say, however dishonest it may be, in order to achieve what they're out to achieve. And which for some is simply to destroy things, to tear down uh, literally physical structures, um, institutions, and so forth. It's the, the, what they are out to achieve is simply to destroy without any idea of what to build in its place. That's not true of all by any stretch of the imagination. It certainly is true of some, which again suggests they fit the description of being reckless, ungrateful, unholy, unappeasable, without self-control. And we could certainly say, any of us on an individual level, any of these things that are true of what we see in the culture at large could be true of us individually. We don't have to look very far to find ingratitude and unholiness and a lack of self-control, among other things. But these, these are these are strikingly, again, starting, startlingly true of American culture more globally right now, globally meaning just sort of collectively, that America seems to have walked out onto the ledge, as it were, and is standing there contemplating cultural suicide with many people just certain that things are so bad um, that, that we just need to put our whole way of life to death and start over. And, and in the process of doing so, uh, seems to reveal that we just lost perspective on just how evil mankind can be. We've actually been quite blessed to live in not only America, but probably just Western civilization in this specific regard. That evil men can do things beyond our imagination just about. And do so regularly in, in places all over the world. But we're beginning to get a glimpse of that right before our very eyes, just how evil mankind can be. Proverbs 14:12 and Proverbs 16:25 both say, "There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its way, uh, its end is the way of death. Mankind is always, has been from the beginning, the very beginning, always prone to reject God's way of living and substituting a way that seems right to him instead. This is, this is just our pattern. We think we can live however we want, pursue whatever we want, all without limits and yet also all without consequence. And it is not 
true. It seems right. It seems right, but its end is the way of death. And really, I think a, a perfect example that lies within, I think, the one vice that I haven't even mentioned in this whole list. And it, it stands out to me because I don't think we would put it on this list of ugliness if we were making a list of the very worst, some of the very worst vices of a, of a totally decadent and godless culture. And it is that these people are disobedient to their parents. I mean, that, I don't think our culture, and even in many cases the church, I don't think we treat that as being as serious as it's treated in the Bible. But as the family goes, so goes the civilization. And you may want to argue that that's not the case. You can wish that wouldn't be the case. It is the case. Where there's a breakdown in family order, there will follow a breakdown in societal order. And why do I even mention that? Well, because um, God has established the family as the most basic social unit um, through which he accomplishes his will, through which order is to be even maintained in a fallen world. I discussed this more at length in our series on the Ten Commandments um, back in the fall, and I won't rehash all of that now. But, but that was his design to, to establish order through, at the most basic level, the family, where there's a father, a mother, and children, and order there, which requires obedience from children. They learn obedience in the home environment. That's God's design. And from those nuclear families, even in the biblical record, you have uh, one family that then gives birth to other nuclear families, which becomes extended families, which becomes tribes, which becomes a nation. You have nations literally that are sort of a confederation of families. That's, that's the way God laid it out in its most basic form. And so you can be sure that when we try to dismantle that, as some are apt to do right now, as we, as we blur all the lines, it would provide clear boundaries and guidance for the establishment of loving and orderly homes. As we destroy all that, as we blur all that lines, you can, guarantee, you can be guaranteed uh, that the society built on top of that will crumble underneath its weight. And it doesn't matter if people think that doesn't have to be so. It doesn't matter if they've imagined some other way where we can order society apart from the families. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it's the its end is the way of death. And again, that is really just uh, one example on that vice list of how that plays out um, in a practical, observable way and in a terribly destructive way. And so what do we do with all this then? Because it's, it's mostly just this sort of I don't know, shockingly bad news. <laughs> to read it that way, man, that sounds, that sounds really bad. Don't want to get in the middle of that. 
Well, I just remind you that there are two commands here and only two commands. Understand this, that this is the way evil operates. But more relevant to us in terms of what do we walk away with here, avoid such people. That is, don't, don't be one yourself. Avoid being such a person. And don't give place to it. So don't give place to ungodliness in your own life. Don't give place to ungodliness in the life of the church. And that just calls us to a place of real deep examination. Where do we see ourselves in this list? Where does our picture belong on this list of vices? And what is it we need to confess to the Lord and ask him to forgive us of and to begin to repair and restore in our own lives personally? And where do we see, if any place in, in the church, where we built upon a false foundation, where we've made uh, chief interests, love of self and love of pleasure and love of money and pride and arrogance and conceit rather than our affections being wholly set upon God. We want to ask God to show us those things. We want to make honest confession of them and open ourselves for him to do in us as individuals and as his bride whatever it is that he would do to make us clean and pure and spotless for himself let's pray to that end lord we thank you for your word as always god i thank you that you're able to take even scattered thoughts like mine and make sense of them to make clear uh, what i've maybe made obscure or confusing father would you by your spirit uh, give life to your word as the song sang uh, said lord make the book live to me O lord show me yourself inside your word show me myself and show me my savior and make the book live to me would you do that In each of our lives now we ask in Christ's name, amen.